0: Welcome to the B-Team Bible Study, a show for people who are curious about the Bible and like it when someone explains things like Sadducees and Apocalypse without first having to ask. My name is Kristen Noop and I am your host. Today we move right along in Acts chapter 4 where we hear of the fallout from Peter and John's little healing miracle at the temple. These guys had no idea when they went off to an afternoon of prayer that they'd be spending the night in prison. The powers that be are exasperated that this Jesus just won't go away already. So let's read now Acts chapter 4. So while Peter and John were speaking to the people, a crowd of official-looking people shows up. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them deeply annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus, there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard Peter's sermon believed, and the church grew to about 5,000 that day. Let's pause here. Who was this official-looking crowd, and why do they have jurisdiction here? Well, we need to go back a little bit. Ever hear in elections how so-and-so has the woman vote or the Latino vote, and you're like, really? All women vote the same way? All people of Hispanic heritage have the same vision for government? Not likely. Well, Jerusalem was really no different. They may have been Jewish by ethnic heritage, but that's kind of where the unity ended. There were several factions within the faith, and some of these were codified into official parties. For at least 100, 150 years, the Sadducees were the party du jour, the party of power. They held the highest offices, the most favor with Rome, their foreign an overlord, and typically the most wealth. They considered themselves traditionalists, for the only scripture they considered authoritative was the written Pentateuch, or the first five books of the First Testament, which would be, tick them off with me, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as best as I can tell, in their view, the idea of a resurrection A new and eternal life, not just resuscitation or revivification, but new life and resurrection was not supported in these first five books. So for them, there's no afterlife. Their faith convictions did appreciate the maintenance of the temple, proper worship, and maybe even civic peace, like keeping Rome reasonably happy and therefore avoiding conflict, that they can just continue their business in Jerusalem. Well, they weren't the only religious sect within Judaism. You also had the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and others. The Sadducees and some Pharisees and scribes and other leaders served on a local religious governing council known as the Sanhedrin, a group of men who got to make decisions, arrests, and judgments about religious life in their city. Again, as best as I can tell, I'm no expert, the Roman Empire didn't much care about the religious proclivities of this far-flung backwater region of the empire so long as they didn't interfere with allegiance to Rome. So Rome granted the Sanhedrin authority over the temple, which is why they were able to make the arrest. Civic matters, like an alleged treason and execution, Jesus, were the jurisdiction of Rome's stationed governor, Pilate. All right, back to the story. The next day, The rulers elders and scribes assembled in jerusalem the sanhedrin presumably with annas caiaphas who was the high priest john and alexander all who were of the high priestly family so caiaphas was the reigning high priest annas was a former high priest and actually caius's father-in-law these two former and active high priests are considered the chief priests John's identity is uncertain. It could be Annas's uh, grandson who's visiting, or if it's actually Jonathan, which another tr- uh, manuscript says, that would be Ananias's uh, son, who would actually serve as a high priest in the future after Caiaphas. Isn't all this background stuff fascinating? It gives so much more texture to these stories for me. So I have to pause here and highly recommend the book, Killing a Messiah by Dr. Adam Win. I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Dr. Wynn is an excellent storyteller, and he wrote a dramatic recounting of the final weeks of Jesus' life from the perspectives of people living in Jerusalem, like the high priestly family, a shopkeeper, even imagining a chilling tale of what might have really motivated Judas to betray Jesus. Each of these characters that we might be quick to judge or write off is conveyed with great care and compassion, and it really helped me to appreciate the massive consequences of upending the status quo in Jerusalem. Anyway, it's really good. I couldn't put it down. Not sure what that says about me, that I'm captivated by biblical drama, but there's some really naughty stuff in there, guys. Don't count it out. So the Sanhedrin assembles. It's like 70 dudes of wealth, status, and power, and they bring the prisoners out to stand in front of them. Peter, John, and even the guy who was healed, though I don't have his name. The Sanhedrin begins their line of questioning. By what power or by what name did you do this? Referring to the healing everyone couldn't stop talking about. And Peter is refilled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks in verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead dramatic pause. And now he's about to quote from Psalm 118. The early church just loves to quote King David. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders. That's you guys. but turns out he's actually the cornerstone. Peter is saying that Jesus is the linchpin of the faith that you claim to protect and serve. He goes on to say in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. Okay. Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about healing. But Peter knows an opportunity when presented with one. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among mortals, by which we must be saved. You heard it here, guys. Jesus is both exclusive and universal. He is for everyone, but he is the way, guys. Okay, so when the council saw the boldness, this word can even be translated as shamelessness, of Peter and John, and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men The council was amazed and they recognized them as, oh, those guys are companions of Jesus. Seriously, these guys are back. When the council saw the man who had been healed standing beside them, again, they couldn't deny the miracle. They realized they didn't have a case. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter. Now, this is interesting. We're about to get a peek into a closed door meeting. Was this because there was a couple of known sympathizers who recounted this detail to Luke during his painstaking research of this two-volume letter? Could be. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea both served on the council but were open to the work of God in Jesus. It could even have been Paul, who we haven't met yet, but he served on his local Sanhedrin and he could have heard about this conversation as the Jewish establishment closed ranks on this popular and growing sect that was claiming Jesus was this long-awaited messiah. So the council says to one another, what are we going to do about these guys? It's all over town that a notable sign has been been done through them. We can't deny it. But to keep it from spreading further, let's just tell them to stop talking about this whole in the name of Jesus thing and for the love, stop talking about the resurrection. So they called P and J back into the chamber and ordered them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This is great. First, the council demonstrates that they realize something miraculous has happened but not just a miracle. In the ESV and in the New Revised Standard Version, they call it a sign. What do signs do? They point us in the right direction. This was a sign pointing to something bigger, the dawning of the Messianic Age that we've talked about when God was going to restore all things. Second, the council fully expected Peter and John to obey their decision. These were fishermen, foolish men. They weren't credentialed to practice scribal law. They didn't have any special training in the Torah. They were out of place in these ivory halls of power. The Sanhedrin was accustomed to the people accepting their will as the will of God. But check out what Peter and John say in response. Call it fearlessness, call it two men radically in love with God, call it speaking truth to power. They say, whether it is right in God's eyes to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. As for us, there's no question. We can't keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. Mic drop. The council was sort of fascinated at first, and now they're just pissed. They threatened them again, but realized they have to let them go. They couldn't find a charge that would stick. And everyone in town couldn't stop talking about this miracle that God had done to the man who had been healed after being paralyzed for 40 years. So there you have it. A couple of observations. God is watching and helping the early church get its sea legs, punctuating the speeches with miracles, undeniable signs like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the languages, the healing, the hundreds of conversions. And these miracles are referred to as signs, pointing people in the right direction towards the truth of what God is doing in Christ, towards reconciliation and fellowship with one another and healing. This isn't necessarily how God always works in such radical displays of power, but I wonder if you can think of a time when God was highlighting a path for you through signs, an answered prayer, a green light, literal or figurative, the right words spoken at the right time that touched a tender or open spot in your life because wisdom can be more precious than jewels. Guys, pay attention to the signs. I think they are far more abundant than we realize. Dozens of small ways that God is tossing us softballs of encouragement and adventure and hope and correction. Are we in a place to notice? Also, the council just gets me. I mean, how can these guys not see it? Are they that in love with their life as is, the perks of power, that they can't even consider they might be wrong in one or two ways? I mean, on the one hand, I totally get it. They had taken their place in a long tradition and had a responsibility to protect the truth or the truth as they understood it. To break ranks could burn it all down and that's incredibly destabilizing. I posted something on my Facebook page asking people to help me think through how we get stuck in our wrong-headed values. How do we come blind to what true allegiance to Jesus looks like? And what does it feel like to suddenly see? Some good thoughts. On, on the one hand, we deduced that really, it's only the Holy Spirit that can truly convict us. You might encounter a truth in a sermon, a podcast, an article through a friend. You might even be gently challenged or sharply rebuked. I've had both in my life. But until you have the eyes to see and the ears to really hear, this new idea in your current thinking and lifestyle tend to be like oil and water. They just don't mix. But the Spirit of God can help enable us to realize the error of our ways And in my experience, thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit can perfectly meet out these truth bombs in a way that we can handle them. Also worth noting are the beautiful collaboration between faith and bodily experiences and emotions. My friend and pastor at my church, Dan Akins, commented that the feeling of being anxious can be a sign that might be God saying, hey, look look over here, do some tending, some exploring, something's up. So what if one of the council members had piped up and said, Hey brothers, why are we so threatened by this? I mean, maybe they wouldn't have decided anything different in the moment. I've served on plenty of church committees. A lot of things don't happen that fast, but maybe, maybe that simple question would have haunted the hearts of these men as they went about their prayers and worship. And it might've given God a foothold to begin to woo them into a new way of seeing what God is really up to, that they're invited to join in. They still have a role. Another friend, Dustin Hatfield of The Scattered Mystic, I'll post a link to his blog that thoughtfully challenges a lot of our traditional religious language and assumptions. He observed that the lack of a diverse community of faith can create an echo chamber. You're less likely to become aware of being off target if everyone around you thinks the same thing. I think the social dilemma had a little something to say about that. Hey, we know we aren't saved by getting our theology airtight. Thanks be to God that we are saved by grace alone. But what we think about God has consequences. So how has God gotten your attention in the past? And what did that feel like? Were there a few false starts? And where is God trying to get your attention now? Hey, we are out of time, so I wanted to wrap up with a little challenge. Will you join me in reading all the way to the end of Acts by next week? We'll still study it bit by bit on the podcast, but let's see how it all ends. Let's meet Paul and go on some adventures outside Jerusalem. Let's meet Peter, the Peter, who's been dropping knowledge like crazy to get a taste of his own medicine as God confronts some of his own prejudice. Let's see some more miracles. Will you read it with me? It'll probably take a few hours, so maybe swap out the Bible app audio during a walk, or go old school and just read it from the Bible. Thanks for being on the B-Team, guys. Until next time. This is my first acknowledgement section, and I wanted to include it at the end of this episode. First, I want to thank Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas, for supporting the work of this podcast, for marketing efforts and cheerleading and encouragement and sponsoring the time. And for the first time ever, the equipment needed to produce these episodes, I'm using an actual mic this time. So I also want to say thank you to Jonathan Humphreys, my friend, for explaining things called pops and plosives to me. Hopefully those are a little bit better now with a mic that has one of those little filter thingies. Also, thanks to Dan Akins, Dustin Hatfield, Gina Etherton, and Josh Lemons for a thoughtful dialogue on my Facebook page that helped shape some of the thoughts and ideas for this episode.